invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, and we won't be there very long. We'll be looking at a couple of other texts, but Luke chapter 2 this morning as we continue a sermon series. We began last Lord's Day, an Advent series on the majesty of the incarnation, uh, the majesty of God become flesh, uh, the time when in the fullness of time, God took upon himself humanity, flesh, and the person of Jesus Christ. We want to continue to think about these things. Luke chapter 2 this morning, we'll read some of the opening verses, then I'm going to flip over to Philippians and then to Colossians, uh, just to try to bring some thoughts together, and then we will turn our hearts to consideration of the perfections of God. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now regarding that baby that was born, Jesus of Nazareth, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15 still regarding this baby. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you once again this morning asking you, Father, for eyes to see and ears to hear from your word. We've already considered this morning from Jesus' own high priestly prayer that your word is truth. It's your word that sanctifies us. It's your word that grows us and enlightens us. It's your word and the revelation of your glory most clearly in the face of Jesus Christ that makes all the other enchantments of the world look dull when compared to you. Father, our greatest need is to be a people of the word. It's to be a people of the book. A people, Father, who don't just read the word for reading's sake, but rather to know you. To know your glory revealed in the person of your son, Jesus, in the power of your Holy Spirit. And that's what we pray for this morning. We pray, Father, that as you continue to unveil more of your nature your excellencies, your perfections. That, Father, we would not be content with mere knowledge. We would not be content with theological categories. But that our only joy in this life is to truly know you. To have a relationship with the God that you are in your son, Jesus. And to grow to be like you in the ways that we can to be like your son, to be sanctified so that as we go out into the world, we can be the ambassadors, the men and women, the children that you have called us out of the world to be for your honor and your glory, that we would be worshipers who truly don't just go through the motions, but truly from a heart of love and affection for you, worship you, and even during this holiday season, see Christ as the fullness of God. Enchant us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we are spending a few weeks going through a, an Advent series on the majesty of the Incarnation. It is not unusual. It's not, there's no obligation during the four weeks leading up to Christmas that you have to preach a sermon on Advent, but I do think it's helpful during the season that God has given us for us to take time to, to focus our hearts upon the, the glory of Christ and his incarnation, the wonder, if you will, of the incarnation. And as we talked about last week, there's various ways of doing it. We've done it various different ways. Everything from reading through the birth narratives of Jesus and Matthew and Luke and John to going through some of the Old Testament prophecies where we look at passages like Isaiah 
which draw out some of who the coming Messiah is going to be. But we're doing a little bit different this year, for better or for worse. Something that I rarely ever do, but I do think it has its place um, in certain situations. Preaching topically, preaching theologically, rather than expositionally, rather than taking a text and just word by word, verse by verse, kind of going through it. We're allowing topically, we're going to address the majesty of the incarnation in a topical sense, which is... I think helpful when you're trying to bring clarity to something. When you're wanting to say more specific things about a topic than maybe a given text is going to say. And so that's the approach that we're taking this morning. And we began last Lord's Day with a consideration of the nature of God. In this sermon series on the the majesty of the incarnation, we're not even beginning with Christ. In fact, we... We're not even going to get to Christ until next week. So the first two weeks are beginning with God himself, who he is. And the reason is this. No matter how glorious your thoughts are of the newborn babe, if you don't have a right view of God, whatever your thoughts of that newborn baby are, they're only going to be as high as your view of God. As I look around this morning, I think we probably all, this may be a presumption, but I think we all presume, we all understand that that, uh, the the baby born there in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph is the Messiah. It is God in flesh. It's God incarnate. I don't think that's news to anybody. What this sermon series is not about trying to teach something you already know, though we all need reminders. It's making sure that when we look at that baby, our thoughts are as high as they need to be. In order to have a to truly celebrate and worship the incarnate Christ, you're, the, 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 the God become man, then our thoughts of God need to be through the roof. And therefore, we begin with God. And it's impossible to think about God incarnate without first thinking about God. And so last Lord's Day, we spent our time thinking about seven things that need to be said concerning God. These seven things are not all encompassing. They are certainly not everything, but they laid a foundation for us. Number one, God is incomprehensible. He's unknowable. Which if you remember, that's an odd place to begin when we're talking about the nature of God. He's unknowable. We can't know him fully. We can know him truly because he has revealed something of himself to us, but he has not revealed himself exhaustively to us, because it can't be done. We can't understand that. I mean, just let that thought sit in your mind. I hope you've spent some time with that this week. (laughs) No matter how weighty and majestic your thoughts of God are, or read your greatest theologian, or read a compendium of theological works throughout church history, With God's help, those are truths about God, but they only begin to scratch the surface. We can't know God exhaustively because he is incomprehensible. We know him truly because he has revealed himself to us in ways we can understand, but never make the mistake of thinking, you know God. You know God truly to the extent he has allowed us to know him. But we don't know him exhaustively. Number two, not only is God incomprehensible, God is triune. 
There we talked about the Father, Son, and Spirit. We talked about, we read that quote from Augustine. We said we, we use the, the, the language of Father, Son, and Spirit not because that exactly reflects who they are. It's, that's human language to try to help. This is what God has revealed about himself. It's fatherly, it's sonly, it's spiritly. But even Augustine said, don't assign Father, Son, and Spirit. He's saying those terms are just the best we can do to try to capture the, the weight, the gravity, the majesty of this aspect of God's being and this aspect of God's being and this aspect of God's being. The fact that God is triune, three persons. Again, that's what, that's what Augustine was wrestling with. He's, it's not persons. That's just, that's what we know. So that's the kind of language we use. But don't think of him as persons. He's not a person. The next attribute we talked about, God is spirit. He's not a person, but that's just, we got to call it something, so person. But God is number three, a spirit. He's not physical. He doesn't have a body. Jesus himself tells us God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He doesn't have a body. He's not a composite being made up of different parts. Number four, God is self-existent. He's incomprehensible, triune. He's a spirit. Number four, he's self-existent, which means he's of himself, which just simply means no one made him. No one sustains him. He doesn't need anything. He's self-existent. He satisfies himself. Doesn't need you, doesn't need me, doesn't need oxygen, doesn't need food, doesn't need water. He's not, he's not human. He's a spirit. There's no value we add to him when he created all this thing into existence. It's not because he was lonely. It's not because he was bored. Quite the opposite. No need for any of this. He is of himself. Number five, we said that God is infinite, without limitations, without boundaries, in all of his being. So he is infinite in regard to time. There was no beginning, there is no end. Past, present, future, it's all now to him. He is right now with Moses at the burning bush. He is right now with us right here, and he is right now to the end of time. He encompasses it all. <laughs> the past is not the past with him. The future is not the future. There is no such thing with God. He is over it now, which speaks to why we can talk about his sovereignty and we talk about his providence over all things and we can, we can stop talking about what God knows because he looked into the future. There is no future with God. He is all things. He is controlling right now what happened to in our time in the past, and he's controlling what will happen in the future, but he's doing it all now. It's all one. He's not limited by the things we're limited by. He's infinite with return in terms of, of time and space. We speak of God's omnipresence. He's in all places fully. He's not like a sheet that you unwind and unwrap and he spreads all the way out this way and all the way out that way. So you have part of God over here and part of God here and part of God here. No, no, no. You have fullness of God here, fullness of God there, fullness of God out there, 
Fullness of God in California. Fullness of God in heaven. Fullness of God everywhere. He is fully everywhere. He's infinite in regard to power. There's nothing he can't do. There's literally absolutely nothing he can't do. So again, we can stop saying things, well, that's not my God. My God wouldn't do that or couldn't do that. You don't know. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. Submit and surrender your heart. You've never known one like this. You've tried to make him, you've tried to bring him down to your level to try to make you understand that he does things how you understand things. He's omnipotent. He has no limitations. He's not bound by what you understand. He's not bound by what I can connect and think through in my thoughts. What I think is fair. What I think is right. He's the definition of what's fair. He's the definition of right. Not me. He's omnipotent in everything. He is the Lord Most High, sovereign, without constraint. You can't frustrate Him. You can't change Him. Which is the sixth thing. God is unchanging. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't grow. He doesn't learn. He doesn't evolve. God doesn't improve. God does not repent. You say, well, I, I think I've read passages in the Bible that says God repented of doing something. That's him condescending to our language. He's trying to help us understand something that he's doing that we otherwise wouldn't understand. He does not change his mind. He doesn't repent. He doesn't sin. God doesn't have mood swings. He's not given to passions. God doesn't have a sense of humor. Right? We can quit saying, well, God must have a sense of humor. He doesn't have that. He's not like us. He's not given to fits of rage one moment and then he's peaceful in the next moment. Yes, people do come to experience at one moment the wrath of God and at other times they may find themselves at his mercy. That's not because he's wavering back and forth. He doesn't change. He's always got those attributes of wrath and mercy working simultaneously perfectly in correlation. He's not changing from one point to the next. We experience change. God doesn't. God doesn't weaken over time, over the course of, again, if we're thinking in terms of time as we know it, past, present, and future. We're accustomed to seeing things as as time goes, we get weaker, we get more feeble. We lose strength. We lose vitality. Might it be that God, over the course of time, is losing something? No. He can't. He's unchanging. The seventh thing we said, and probably one of the more complex things, is God is simple. God is simple. Which, again, the very word itself sounds contradictory. But what we mean by simple is that he's not composed of parts. You and I are. We are composite beings. We are made up of body and spirit. To take it a step further, we're made up of body parts, right? There's different parts of us, but with God, there are no parts. He's not a composite being. He's not body and spirit. We've already said he's just spirit. He's a simple being. 
everything that God is, is God. If you take the soul out of the body, you you can't say, well, that's still the same person, right? We've sat in enough coffins of loved ones where the soul has left the body. It's just a body there. And I've heard people say things like, that's not Joe. That's not him. What are they saying there? I mean, obviously that's physically the body they've used, but they're, they're saying what? Part of him is not there. He's no longer what he once was. Well, with God, there's never such a thing. God is not a composite being. He's a simple being. All that God is, God is. Now, I told you last week, my objective in last week's message was to hurl these massive concepts at you to almost make your mind explode, to almost to intentionally try to frustrate you, to intentionally make God so big and so large that you almost feel helpless to know this God. Because then and only then is God getting near where he ought to be anyway. You see, we have done such a horrendous job of bringing God down to our level that we've almost humanized God. We've almost made him what he condemns in the Psalm chapter 50. You you thought I was like one of you. I'm not. You've made me into something I'm not. God is high and exalted and unknowable. He's revealed himself as such. And it is not upon you and I to try to make him knowable. That's idolatry. It's not upon us to try to take the unknowable, the incomprehensible, and to try to tame it, to try to bring it in, to try to make it feel as if it's knowable. Too often when it comes to knowing God and theology, the more we know, the more prideful we become. That's sinister. It should be just the opposite. The more you come to know about God, there should be that instant reflex. What I think I know is nothing compared to the fullness of who He is. God ought to loom large in our minds. God is incomprehensible. He ought to be incomprehensible in our minds. His thoughts of Him ought to blow our minds. They ought to loom large. We should stand in awe of Him. We should stand helpless and confess, these things are greater than me. Why? Because they are. He is beyond us. The Dutch theologian, Herman Bavink, has this to say, Scripture asserts asserts the unreachable majesty and sovereign highness of God. There is no knowledge of God as He is in Himself. There is no knowledge available to you and I of God as He is in Himself. We are human. He's the Lord our God. There is no name that fully expresses His being, no definition that captures Him. He infinitely transcends our picture of Him, our ideas of Him, our language concerning Him. He is not comparable to any creature. All the nations are accounted by Him as less than nothing. And vanity. 
He has made himself available to be apprehended, but he cannot be comprehended. No thorough, there is some knowledge, but there is no thorough grasp of God. And then this theologian goes on to quote Augustine again, who says, we're speaking about God. It's little wonder that you don't comprehend. For if you comprehend what you know about God, it is not God you're comprehending. Let it be a pious confession of ignorance rather than a rash profession of knowledge. To attain some slight knowledge of God is a great blessing. To comprehend Him, however, is completely impossible. The God of the Bible is true, He's living, He's majestic, He's full of glory and splendor and might, so much so, you and I. But thanks be to God, that's not where the conversation ends. This great and glorious, incomprehensible, triune, spirit God, who's unchanging, who's infinite, who's simple, beyond our comprehension, is also a personal God. He is Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. The God who upon his own will enters into personal relationship with his creation of his own volition. He does it. Creation would have no concept if it wasn't for him making himself known in a personal way. We can know God, just not fully, not exhaustively. We can know him truly in the ways he's revealed himself to us. We can't know him the way he knows us. He knows us thoroughly. All right? We've seen that over and over. We've seen that in Jesus' public ministry. He has a thorough, complete knowledge of us inside and out, up and down. There's nothing he doesn't know about us. We can't know him that way. But we can know him truly. How? Well... Because he has taken it upon himself to reveal himself to us. He's taking it upon himself to unveil to us what we would not be able to know otherwise. He has disclosed himself to us. He has stooped down to our level, if you will. And he has whispered to us in a language that we can understand. I am God. I'm struck by a quote in Calvin's Institutes, written by, again, John Calvin, great reformer. Calvin, in order to, in the section on the knowledge of God, in order to help us to understand the weightiness of God's just otherness, says this, Who is so devoid of intellect as not to understand that God in so speaking to us about himself, lisps with us as nurses are wont to do with little children. Now, let me stop there. There's more to the quote. What Calvin has just done is picture in your mind a newborn baby. 
And that nurse has just taken that baby from the mother's womb, is carrying it around. How is that nurse talking to that child? Is the nurse teaching that little baby the laws of thermodynamics? Is, it, is that nurse speaking great and glorious truths? True truths. Things that that baby in, in the fullness of time will know, but in that moment, is that nurse talking to that child like an adult? Is that nurse speaking loudly? No, she's probably talking baby talk, gibberish, whispering. Why? That's all the baby can handle. That's all the baby can handle. That's what Calvin says God has done to us in his word. Oh, we who think we are mighty theologians, and we are. If we know God in his word, we know right, true things about God. But understand this, what God has spoken to us, he's like that nurse speaking to that little baby. It's but a whisper. It's what we can understand in our frail, feeble humanity. Calvin goes on to say, such modes of expression do not so much express what kind of being God is, as accommodates the knowledge of him to our feebleness. In doing so, he stoops far below his proper height to come down to where we are, to whisper into our ears something of the God that he is. And we want to go around saying, well, that's not the God I know. That's not the God who, that's not my God. God, in order to reveal himself to us, has stooped down low to us and spoken to us in a whisper something of his glory, something of his weight, something of his majesty. And if you think back to even like the the prophet Isaiah, or you think about Moses at the burning bush, or you think about Peter in the boat, even that whisper was enough for them to drop down dead. But that was but a whisper of the true magnitude of his glory and greatness. He has stooped low to us to whisper to us, here's who I am. He's done so in creation. He does so through his acts. He does so through his words. And he does so most clearly through Jesus. To think of God is the highest and most noble of all activities. And if you're going to think rightly about that baby in the manger, if you're going to think rightly about the description about that baby that says, in him the fullness of God dwelt. And you've got to understand something of even in that moment what you think you think you know about the fullness of God indwelling that baby is but a whisper of the magnificent, unknowable truths of who God is that fills this baby, Jesus of Nazareth. And oh, by the way, as Jesus matures and grows and becomes our Savior, the one we look unto, the fullness of God is in him. Only when we have a right view of God will we have a right view of Christ. So this morning, I want us in the few moments we have to 
Think about some of the perfections of God. The perfections of God. And we'll think about three of them. Number one, the goodness of God. God is good. God is good. There's various ways of thinking about the goodness of God, but it has to begin here. God is by nature good. Yes, God does good things. Yes, He is useful to those, meaning He is good to people. But when we talk about the goodness of God, it begins with this. God is in and of Himself good. That is His essence. That is His absolute being. He is good. Even if He didn't do anything we perceive to be good, His nature is good. We can do good from time to time, but never are we good. Never. We may designate people as good or things as good when they're useful to us, when maybe the car that we have, it's good, it's gotten me, it's useful, it's functioned, it's met my needs, it's gotten me from place to place. It's a good vehicle. When a friend performs their duties, meaning they are friendly to me in times of need, that's a good friend. But when we talk about God, He's good, not because He's useful to us, or not because in our moment of need, He showed up and met us where we were. He is by essence and nature good. He is good in an absolute sense. Not only that, he is good for others. He, in and of his goodness, is good for others. In fact, Scripture says he's our highest good, the supreme good. We are to enjoy him and find our satisfaction in him alone because nothing compares to him in its goodness. Oh, that we would agree with the psalmist. When he says in Psalm 73, whom have, I in heaven, in, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength. God is my portion forever. God is good in and of himself. It's his essence. God is good and is to be enjoyed by everyone and everything. But we can also talk about in God's goodness, he does good to us. It's his essence, but he also does God good to us. He's overflowing with goodness. And again, we can look at various attributes of God that speak to his goodness. We can think about his mercy. The mercy of God is God's goodness to those in a time of misery. God's goodness, his mercy is his goodness to those who are in misery. He shows kindness, compassion to those who are in need. Either by giving them what they want or by doing good for them in a way that they don't understand but still meets their need in Him. Again, He's sovereign. He's all-knowing. He knows what we need better than we do. And God's goodness is not defined by Him giving me what I think I need. He might do that, or he might not do it, because in his goodness, he knows better than we do 
and he who is working all things out according to his will and for our good gives us what he knows is best. And when he doesn't give us what we think we need, what is the charge we send? God, I thought you were good. I thought you were merciful. I thought you were compassionate. Don't you see? Of course he sees. Of course he knows. Better than you do. Better than I do. He is by nature good. And if he didn't give you what you think you want, then guess what? You didn't know what was good for you. He does. Lamentations chapter 3. This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who sees him. Another expression of God's goodness is not only his mercy, but his patience. His patience. What is patience? It's God's goodness to spare those who deserve punishment right here, right now. It's God's willingness, His kindness to spare those who deserve punishment right here, right now. We call it His patience. or We call it His forbearance. Paul writes about in Romans chapter 2, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and of his forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Meaning, if God in good, kind patience with you has not given you what you deserve in this moment, that is him being kind beyond measure, good, And he intends it not to say, well, look what you got away with. Go ahead. I don't care. Scripture makes it clear. God is righteous. And he will punish all unrighteousness. And if he's been patient with you, it's intended, as Paul says, to give you opportunity to repent while there's still time. To run to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Mercy is an expression of God's goodness. Patience is an expression of God's goodness. Grace is an expression of God's goodness. When God is good to someone who only deserves hell, who only deserves death, spiritual death, the Bible calls that grace. That's undeserved goodness. Undeserved goodness. Now, there is a sense in which God is good to all people in all times and all places. We talked about this last week. We call it common grace. Common grace, God allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. The unjust are given air to breathe, food to eat. All good gifts come from above. That's the common grace of a God to all people in all places. But when we talk about special uh, grace or specific grace we're talking about God's grace to some but not to all God's ways are not our ways his mind's not our mind he doesn't operate by your standard of fairness or what you think is right 
God who is sovereign over all, who is self-existent, who doesn't need anyone or anything, who has no limitations, no boundaries, has chosen for his, by his grace and for his glory to show grace, an expression of his goodness to some and not grace to others. It's the only way for his goodness, his grace to be glorified. He's got to show grace to some. He can't show it to all because then what doesn't get glorified? His wrath. God is not a composite being. He's a simple being. All that God is, God is. He is both simultaneously grace and wrath. His grace is an expression of his goodness. He is gracious to an undeserving people, to the praise of his goodness. And it's not unfair that he's not gracious to everybody and allows some to receive what they deserve, what they get, because his wrath is an expression of his glory. The wages of sin is death, but by the grace of God, there is salvation through Jesus Christ for those that he has set apart unto himself. And that beloved, if you're counted among them, and the fact that you're here this morning and you're a member of this congregation, you've given evidence of being counted among them. It's not to your religiousness. It's not to your, how smart you are in the Bible. If you're counted among God's elect, it's to the praise of his goodness. He has shown grace and undeserved goodness to you who, like me, once hated him, despised him, had no interest in him. It's the goodness of God. The highest demonstration of God's goodness is his love. The love of God. Those whom he brings into a proper relationship with him, by grace, he loves. Again, Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. God's love is an expression of his goodness. And if we are the objects of God's love for his glory, it's not something we stomp our feet at and say, well, God, I, that's not fair. I don't get it. That's the right perception to have. You don't get it. He's incomprehensible. You just praise his goodness. And you praise him for who he has whispered in your ear. He is. And even though I don't get it, like that baby doesn't get anything that that nurse is telling him or her in that moment, I'm just grateful you've whispered to me at all. And you've revealed something of your glory truly to me. And I may not get it. But we'll spend all of eternity working through that. To know God the love of God, the grace of God, the patience of God, the mercy of God, all are expressions of the goodness of God. Secondly, very quickly, the holiness of God. God's holiness is what sets him apart from all other things. When we talk about God's holiness, we are not primarily talking about his moral purity. That is an aspect of it. We're not, when we talk about God being holy, 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 we're not fundamentally saying sinless, sinless, sinless. 
That's a part of God's holiness. But God's holiness, what, what it is that makes everyone fall down as though dead before Him, is His otherness. He's unlike anything that's ever been seen before, anything that's ever been known before. It's overwhelming to finite creatures to come into contact with the infinite. God's holiness is that He is set apart from all other creatures, all other creations, set apart from all evil. That's why in Isaiah chapter 6, the angels are heard singing around the throne, holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. This is what sets Him up high and lifted up. He's not like the best among all of us. He's not like the best human ever. He's not human. He's a spirit. He's so other. He is supreme. He is superior. Holy is who He is. And the work of God's goodness in the life of a sinner is that the holy God creates a holy people, a separate people, an other type of people than what we once were to live with Him forever in the holy place because He is holy. And then lastly, God is righteous. We've said God is merciful. Number two, God is holy. Number three, God is righteous. The third of God's attributes, perfections, we're looking at this morning. God is righteous, which just simply means if you're ever, what does it mean by right? Just take those first, one, two, three, four, five letters, R-I-G-H-T. He's right. Everything he does is always right. He can't do otherwise. Even when, when we as prideful, finite creatures look at what the activity of God, the actions of God, and we want to say, God, that's not right or that's not fair, guess who's in the wrong there? <laughs> you and I are. He is by nature righteous. He forever does what is right. He is always right. He can never be anything other than right. His judgments are always right. His actions are always right. His decisions are always right. His decisions in eternity past are always right. He is the righteous judge. You know, I found we, we like to speak of them goodness of God, right? We like to talk about mercy and patience and grace and love. Those things are pleasing to think about. And even the holiness of God is, is one that it's as, so long as we don't confine the conversation to me having to be holy, I mean, I feel good about God is holy. Though you can't separate the two. What we tend to ignore, though, is the righteousness of God. That's what we tend to reject. That God is always right. Everything he does is right. You may not understand it. You won't understand it. He's incomprehensible. But he is always right. And one day he will judge the world in righteousness. Paul warned the heathens in Athens saying this in Acts chapter 17. 
the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. God is good. God is holy. But you can't ignore that he is righteous. And he is always right. And this should serve as a great comfort to those who are by God's grace, chosen and called and given his son, we are now righteous in Jesus Christ. When we see unrighteousness in the world, when we see it go on around us and it frustrates us, and it should, when we see injustice in the world and it seems like it's allowed to go on, it seems like it never stops, it seems like it's spiraling out of control, A righteous God is on his throne in that very moment. And he's in complete control. And again, in righteous, his righteousness, we won't understand. We don't always get it. But here's what we do know. Because he is righteous, he always does what's right. And the promise of God's word is he will Sooner than later, probably, judge the world in righteousness. Doesn't mean that today everything's going to be better. But it does mean no one will get away with anything. They will stand before a righteous judge. And he will exact the punishment exactly as it's supposed to be. So for you and I, the righteousness of God is a comfort because of the righteousness of Christ. We can stand before him because of Christ. We stand, even though we're sinners, we stand before him forgiven in Jesus, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. When we stand before this righteous judge, we will stand as righteous because of Jesus. But for those disconnected from Christ, the righteousness should cause the sinner to tremble. It should cause them to turn from their sin and run to the Savior. The only place where they will find forgiveness for sins. Imagine standing before this holy God, whom even what we think we know about him only begins to pale in comparison. It's but a whisper of the truth of his holiness. Imagine standing before this holy God, awesome and glorious in your sin. And whatever you imagine is but a whisper of the reality. You don't want to stand before a holy and righteous God in your sins. That you will stand before him is certain. That's a guarantee. What you want is to stand before him clothed in Christ. That's the only hope you have clothed in his righteousness, and washed by his blood. This morning, I've simply chosen three of the perfections of God. His goodness, where underneath that umbrella of God's goodness, we looked at some of the other attributes of mercy and peace and grace and patience and love. But the goodness of God, the holiness of God, and we've looked now at the righteousness of God. Oh, beloved, there's more. 
There's so many more. What difference do these truths make in our lives? First of all, we should understand that with regard to these attributes, we are called to be like him. Now, with regard to the things we talked about last week, being incomprehensible, being tri we can't be those things. But with regard to the attributes of God, the perfections of God we've talked about this morning, as the people of God set apart by God out of the world unto himself, we are called to reflect these things in our lives. We are called to be just as God is good, we are to be good and merciful and patient and loving and gracious and kind. As God is holy, we are to be holy. Yes, morally pure, but sin is something we battle until glorification. Holiness being what? Primarily set apart out of the world unto the Lord for his service, for him to make his glory known and to righteousness, to do what's right, to uphold justice, to uphold what's right, leaving the results ultimately to God. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, for you shall be holy, for I am holy. Why we're to reflect our God. And how do we do that? By looking to Jesus. Not by trying to pull up your bootstraps, and today I'm going to be good, gooder, better, but rather looking to Jesus, being conformed to his likeness as you see his goodness. Because in him, the fullness of God dwells. You want to be more holy and set apart into the world? We'll go back to what Jesus prayed this morning in John chapter 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. You want to be more set apart? You want the world to see there's something different in you? It's not by tomorrow, I'm going to, here's my checklist of things I'm going to do differently. It's by tomorrow looking unto Jesus and being conformed to his likeness. And you want to do what's right. Christ is the standard. You look to Him. What difference do these truths in our make, uh, make in our lives? Number one, that we would reflect them in our lives. Number two, in the moment that we hear the call to be holy or to be good, we are to strive looking to Jesus. And then number three, proper understanding of these things prepares us to understand what we celebrate on Christmas morning. A right understanding of these things help us to understand the majesty of the incarnation. We will only worship and celebrate Jesus, the fullness of God come in the flesh, as high as our thoughts are of God. So if we can come to know him as he is, in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his goodness, in his triune being, in his incomprehensibleness, in his spiritness, if we can come to know him as he is, well then our worship of Christ becomes all the more. And our looking unto Jesus, not just in the manger, but throughout his life, his death, his resurrection, and his place right now at the right hand of the Father becomes all the more full. In him, the fullness of God dwells. Let that fall on your mind. 
We've spent two Sundays now just, I'm trying to make the point. I'm trying to intentionally frustrate you. Not bore you. Frustrate you with what we thought we knew about God. It almost seems unknowable. It is. What we know is true. But everything we think we know and all that we don't know is what Christ is. Why would we look anywhere else? It's to Him and to Him alone. Well, this morning, maybe it's I don't know how the Spirit works in your heart, in your life. Maybe there's various aspects, aspects of the attributes of God that you look at and you know, hey, I've not been good as God is good or holy, set apart into the world or righteous. Maybe there's aspects there, things in your life that need to be repented of. Do that. Maybe you know, even as we're entering into Christmas, your view of Christ is far too pedestrian, far too human, far too like you. Repent. Set your eyes upon God. Use this week as a time to know your God as He is, as He's whispered Himself to us. Ask God to make us more humble. Ask God to make us more aware of the God that He is. Ask God to make us a better worshiper for His honor.